Our scripture lesson this morning, if you'll remain standing with me, it comes from Hebrews uh, chapter 1. Let's share in God's good word together. Going through a long line of prophets, God has been addressing our ancestors in different ways for centuries. Recently, he spoke to us directly through his son. By his son, God created the world in the beginning, and it will all belong to the son at the end. The son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. He sells everything together by what he says. Powerful words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. The Bible is far more complex than people often think. Have you heard somebody say the Bible says that I believe it, that ends it? Perhaps you've heard that. Let's just say they're doing better than I am. The New Testament did not come together in a formalized way until more than 300 years after the time of Jesus. Think about that. That's older than our entire country before it was ever written down and put together in our New Testament. Perhaps more troubling is that the Protestant reformers, they threw out some of those texts nearly 1,500 years later, after the death of the apostles. The reformers decided what was in and what was out. So if you look at the Bible that perhaps you use and the Bible that your Catholic friends might use, those are going to be different. It's not the same text. Now, I would like for the Bible to be short, clear, and unmistakable in its guidance. Like a meme. It would make my job a lot easier, I think. But just because I want, or even that I might need something to be a certain way, does not make it so. And just because you want the Bible to say something, or believe something, or something you hold dear, doesn't make it so either. Even if your grandma said so. So it is important that together we begin to make sense of the Bible. Together. My name is Mark Foster. I'm the founding pastor, senior pastor here at Acts 2 United Methodist Church. And it is my deep honor and struggle alongside you to make sense of this book that has formed my entire life. I've given my life to it. I've based my life upon this book each day. I study it intensely. I've paid more than $36,000 to try to understand it in my seminary degree. And professionally, more than half my life. More than 23 years, really 25 years, I've been at this daily. Reading people who've given their entire lives to the original text in Greek and in Hebrew. And I'm still working at it. Still working at it. So the Bible, if you take your sermon notes out, this is, is, I think, one of the most important series um, that, that we've ever taught here. I'm excited about it, petrified of it, uh, because I know that everybody has a lens. And so the people that have a lens on this side uh, have a different lens than the people on this side. Uh, and the people in the middle don't know what their lens is. You know, they, you know. And I stand before you knowing that some of you are truth people. I mean, you're truth people. You're truth people. And other people are grace people. And they're grace people. And they're grace people. And the grace people say that the truth people have no heart. 
And the truth people say that the grace people have no spine. And here we are. I love that line that we sing. Hard truth and ridiculous grace. That's who we are. Both. Both people. So this Bible, these texts that we have, the Bible is a compilation of 66 books. 66 books? It's not a book, it's a library. You have a library in your phone or on your app or before you. And we, we don't normally do this, but I want to invite you uh, for the next four weeks. I want you to come each week and I want you to bring a Bible, a real one, like printed, that you can mark in, that you can highlight, that you can take notes in and say, oh, that's how this fits or this is what that is. And so I know we'll, we'll put a lot of stuff on the screens normally. Uh, we're going to try to maybe put a few less things on the screen so that you actually are turning pages and learning how to do that and writing in your Bible so you can take it home with you. You've got sermon notes, I know, but we also want you to be able to, to work in and through your book. And some of you are so tech savvy that you can highlight stuff in your phone. Good on you. That's awesome. That's not me, but that's good for you. Now, of these 66 books, there are various types of literature. There's stories, there's poetry, wisdom sayings. Perhaps you've heard the phrase proverbial wisdom. Right? Comes straight out of Proverbs. Prophetic warnings. Right? I love the prophets of doom. Not really. <laughs> prophets of doom? Are you kidding? They, they say everything's terrible. It's going to get worse and it's your fault. That's what prophets say. And then there's the good news of the Gospels. Great news of Jesus Christ. The Messiah. The long-awaited one. And then there's letters. Paul's letters. Writing to a specific time in a certain place to answer certain questions that they're asking him. I don't know about you, but I think it's always dangerous business to overhear one end of a phone conversation, don't you? That's what we're trying to do, except we're trying to do it 2,000 years later. Much easier. Much easier. You see, the Bible means book. Oh, and by the way, these 66 books, this library, written over 1,400 years. Not all at once. Different authors, different times, different contexts, different reasons. And yet we say that it all holds together, that the Bible means book. And we call it, of course, the Bible, which means the book, the rule or standard of which we place our lives against. It has been translated into more than a thousand languages, 1,200 languages. It's probably on up. Even since then, they're working at it all the time. And it has 31,173 verses. That's a lot of verses. That's a lot of things to know and to put into context and to try to figure out what God is doing. So, I want you to know that while the Bible is difficult, it is a difficult library. It's also beautiful and wonderful, and we give our lives to it around here. Uh, this year is the 25th or 26th year I've taught Disciple Bible Study. Uh, you have not missed it. If you want to take it for the first time or take it again, it is now uh, squished down to 24 weeks. Uh, we run it alongside the children's programming and the youth programming. Uh, you can come at 545, get a meal. Uh, we start at 630. We'll be done by 8. I highly recommend it. Um, and the folks on the front row and Wendy DeMoss. Where is Wendy in this service? Oh, no. Maybe she's in the next service. Um, some of the best small group leaders we've ever had. I recommend it to you. Uh, so uh, as adults, I think this is the best thing we do. And we'll, we'll wrestle with these things together. Um, it also allows us to dive into things more deeply that in this format it's just difficult to do. Also, in two weeks, we're going to give every third grader uh, a Bible that wants one. And by the way, if you're older than third grade and you don't have a good study Bible, we'll give you one too. Just let us know. We're happy to invest in our students and in anyone who needs a Bible. Anybody who needs a Bible. It's important. 
And so we want you to know that in times of our time, our money, resources, energy, the Bible is where we live as a church. But you've got to work at it. You really do. And it's a dangerous thing in our culture to get your Bible knowledge from Instagram. It just is. It's not smart. Because anybody can pull two verses and make it say whatever you want it to say. It's kind of like praying by yourself. You ever notice when you pray, you can get God to do exactly what you want to do? You know? We pray and use our Bibles like a magic eight ball. God, should I take this new job? Ask again, right? So our action step this summer has been pick up your Bible before your phone. I mean, that's been a a really big thing for me because I pick up the Bible every day and I pick up my phone every day. But I know I'm more or less anxious depending on which one I pick up first. Do I have the discipline to say, no, God, you're first. You're the lens through which I see the world. It's not that I see the world and then I ask for your help with it. I trust God first. Then I pick up my phone for the mess that our world is, the brokenness of our world. Right now, this is so important to me personally, in part because this tradition that we're in, the United Methodist Church, dates back to the Anglican Church. And in 1563, so that's been a while, our tradition has claimed this. That Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation. If anybody says they've got some special knowledge that you need that's outside the Bible, don't believe it. The church has said that's not true for more than 500 years. Right? Everything you need to know is in the Bible, according to salvation. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man or woman, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Everything you need to know that's important for life in this life and the next you can find in the Bible. But here's the way we start Bible study every year, every time. Because people argue about what is the Word of God. This is what the Word of God is, friends. The Word of God is Jesus Christ. Say that with me. The Word of God is Jesus Christ. That is... We have to get right, and we have to get it first. That's why we start with that every year. So, read this with me. The Word of God is Jesus Christ, and the words of the Bible tell us about that Word. Therefore, when we study the words of the Bible, we always look behind, in, and through those words for God's Word, Jesus Christ. I've been teaching this for 25 years. This isn't new. Right? This was written by the bishops of our church back in the late 80s, early 90s. And this is what we believe as a church. That Jesus Christ is the word of God. And the words of the Bible are to be viewed through the lens of Jesus. Adam Hamilton uh, wrote a book called Making Sense of the Bible. That's part of the resource material that we use for this sermon. Uh, he planted a church up in Leewood, Kansas, um, about a decade before we planted Acts 2. And so uh, we've kind of watched him putt first. He's done very well. And um, so we, we listened to Adam because he knows stuff. Uh, we went to a lot of the same schools. He was at Perkins School of Theology before I was. Um, and he was at Christ Church in Tulsa, uh, which is partly where I heard and affirmed my call. I mean, so the people that he runs with, the people that he's studied, the life that he's lived is worth paying attention to. And he says this, when God wanted to speak definitively to the human race... He did not dictate a book. Instead, he sent Jesus. And Jesus did not write a book. He preached, ministered, suffered, died, and rose from the grave. Jesus, following his resurrection, did not tell his disciples in the Great Commission to write a book. He told them to go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching the things that he had taught them. That's right. Friends, we don't worship the Bible. 
we worship Jesus. And the Bible is supposed to help us do that well. So what does the Bible say? Well, let's go back to Hebrews. Let's, let's look what the Bible says about itself and about the word of God. Long ago, right, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, right? Well, you find those in what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew canon. But in these last days, the writer says, God has spoken to us by Jesus, by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and, say this with me, the exact imprint of God's very being. So you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God sounds like? Listen to Jesus. If you want to know what God's up to, look at the life, ministry, healing power of Jesus. And Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is this exact imprint of God's very being. That's what the Bible says. We need to pay attention to that. That's first. You see, Jesus was in the beginning with God and was God and is God. This is written by a first-hand account of John, according to the Gospel of John. Uh, you can go to where John is buried. I've actually been to his burial site in Ephesus, Turkey. Uh, walked right up to his grave. You can be right there. You can see it firsthand. A real person who lived at a real time who knew Jesus personally. And this is what he writes about Jesus. Not as a historian, but as a theologian. About why Jesus is important. And it's because he's God. In the beginning was the Word. What is the Word of God? Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. Right? And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This Jesus, the word became flesh, lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glories of the Father's only Son, full of, oh, there are those two words again. What are they? Grace. And truth. If you find yourself with only one of those, you are in trouble because Jesus holds both. He holds both. Jesus, full of grace and truth. Both. So, again, friends, we don't worship the Bible. Who do we worship? Jesus. That's why we're here. It's what our songs say. It's what we do. We pray to Jesus, not to the Bible. We sing songs to Jesus, not to the Bible. And we don't worship our worship either, by the way. That's a real temptation. We worship Jesus. So, Jesus alone has authority over heaven and earth and scripture. Now think about that. People don't have much of a problem with heaven and earth, but uh, scripture would belong under heaven and earth, wouldn't it? You see, the scripture answers to Jesus, not the other way around. And that's where a lot of our problems come. See, in the very end, the last thing that Jesus says before he goes up to heaven is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much? All of it. All of it. And then, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been working on for six weeks before this series, Jesus says this. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. No, no, no. They're important. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill. Right? To overrule and expand. Not to get rid of, but to change how you understand them. What God's really up to about law and love, truth and grace. 
And in case we missed it, Jesus made it really clear time and time and time again. He would say this. He's referring to all of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the prophets. And he says this. You have heard that it was said, yes, all that's there to those in ancient times. You shall not murder, but I say to you. And then he expands it and he says this is much bigger than not murdering someone. Right? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I really hope this is true. Anybody here murder somebody? I'm, I'm, I want everybody to pay attention. Like, <laughs> okay. So, no. That's a pretty low bar. Do any of you all have broken relationships because of your anger? That probably includes all of us at some time. See, Jesus isn't getting rid of the law. He's making it bigger, different, more beautiful. Because it's not that big a deal not to murder people most days. Right? But man, it can be difficult. Our, Jesus is looking at our hearts, right? And then he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you. Right? It, there may, you may not have actually stepped out physically on someone. But does, is your relationship right with your spouse if you have a thought life that is never about your spouse? No. It's devastating. Jesus says, you've also heard about divorce, but I say to you. Right? People were very, very strong about divorce in in certain ways. Um, Men could basically do whatever they wanted to do, and women uh, basically became beggars or prostitutes. That's the way it went down in Jesus' day. And then he goes on. He says, again, you've heard it said, those of ancient times, you shall not swear. You know, you, you have to be truthful, but I say to you. Right? Jesus is doing this over and over and over again. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. By the way, there's lots of people that want to hang on to that one. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Bless those that persecute you. Pray for your enemies. My power is bigger than that. He says, you've heard it said that, but I say to you, love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. No, no, no. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so you may be children of your Father in heaven. All this is possible in God's good kingdom. And in case we missed all of that, Jesus is filtering this down so that we can actually live it out, so we can understand it. And in Matthew 22, people could not believe what they were hearing. And so this guy calls him on it. He says, whoa, 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 Jesus. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? Because there's a lot of commandments in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Like hundreds. And Jesus says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Love God. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Comes out of Leviticus 13, I believe. So, I want you to see what Jesus is doing. When, when I come home sometimes, Chantel's cooking. And every once in a while, she has one of these things with her. And I know it's going to be a good meal when she's got one of these. Spaghetti night. Or a really groovy salad night. No regular salad, like really fun, groovy stuff. She puts all this stuff in there, right? Um, pick it, whatever you think of all your favorite stuff. You put it in there. But some of it is just for flavor. It's not to be eaten, right? If you've ever been to a Chinese restaurant and got the peppers, you'll know this to be true, right? So you put it all in there, all of it. Put all of it in there, and then you shake it out, Right? And the stuff that you don't want to eat, the stuff that's not good for you, the stuff that's not needed for the dish, comes through the colander. Isn't that true? 
So Jesus puts Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it's a lot of reading, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, right? And, and, and. A lot of books in there. And he starts to shake it out. What's left? What are we supposed to eat on? What's left in the colander after Jesus gets done with that shaking? Two things. You know what they are. Are you willing to live them? Love God with all that you are. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And in case you wonder how to do that, it's by loving your neighbors. Loving others. That's it. Now for the life of me. And it infuriates me. Good and well-meaning Christians. Take what has been shaken out. And then they go. Yeah. Thank God that, you know, what I really struggle with isn't in there. All I have to do is love God, love others. That's it. But, um, you know, there's a person over there that I don't, I don't know that I really want to deal with them because their, their thing's different than mine. And it's kind of hard to deal with, so I'm going to put that back in the colander. Now, mind you, it's never what you deal with, right? I've never known somebody who was divorced to pick up the divorce thing and throw it back in. But they'll pick up something else, won't they? We all have that temptation that we shake out. Jesus has shaken out everything that's not necessary for salvation. And if we're not careful, the religious among us will pick some things back up that we want to toss back in. Because it lets us be better than, which is a lie. There is no better than in the kingdom of God. There is no better than in the kingdom of God. We all sit at one table. We all eat the same food. We sit by whoever shows up. That's the vision of the kingdom of God. So, what is the Bible for then? Now, uh, Timothy's going to say it like this. All scripture is inspired, God-breathed by God, and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient. Why do we do this? To be equipped to serve others for every good work. That's why we read the Bible. It's not just for some head knowledge. It's to put us to work for God, to do the things that Jesus wants done. Now, I'm told, and I don't, I don't know how to... Uh, verify this or not verify this so i just got to kind of take this of what do you think i'm told that this word inspired in the greek doesn't really exist anywhere else except right here some people believe that paul actually made it up because it's such a holy sacred mystery that paul had to try to figure out how to say this because other than the ten commandments and possibly uh in Revelation, where God says to John at Patmos, write these things down, these words are true. Everything else comes through a human, which is most of it, like 99 plus percent of it, is coming through flawed human people. God breathed, God inspired, whatever that means in the Greek, we don't know. But it's coming through people. And if you look at things like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Mark's the first written. Matthew has everything in Mark and adds stuff for a Jewish community. Luke has all of Mark's stuff because it's first written and adds things Luke does for a Gentile community. Theophilus, lover of God, not a Jewish writing. Matthew lays out uh, in five parts like the Torah. 
Um, Luke doesn't. And then John does something completely different. Each with its own lens, each teaches something different. And to be fair and honest, there are discrepancies. They don't lay out the same. Even at the most important story, even at the resurrection, they have different people there. Salome is not in every account of the resurrection. But she's there in one of them. So we don't use this to beat each other up. We don't use this um, to, to know history at every turn. What we use it for is to equip us for every good work. That's what the scripture says. That's why we read it. To help us do the will of God in the world. And all the scripture is inspired, which means God breathed. Uh, as Megan was doing this, this morning, whatever that means. God's in it. God's with us. God's influencing it. But it's not a word-for-word dictation without any lens. As a matter of fact, that's why we read it with multiple translations. Because if you read the Bible in three different translations, it's going to say things differently. Except for every once in a while, there will be direct quotes that they'll, they'll say exactly the same. But try this at home. You'll see this. So what do we do with all this information? How to use and not use the Bible? Well, first of all, I want you to invite the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to read the Bible. God wants you to know his will. God wants you to, to live well in the world. So invite the Holy Spirit every time you read the Bible. Lord, help me know what you want me to do. Now, often, friends, it will not be what you expect. I'll never forget my first preaching class. Zan Holmes, the preaching professor, uh, he told us about um, the, the parable that Jesus tells uh, about the Good Samaritan, where the man gets, gets beaten up, and about how these people walk by, the religious people walk by, and then this other person, a Samaritan, who they're supposed to be enemies with, um, you know, helps them. Now, what he says uh, happens, and I've seen this to be true, is you read that story in Sunday school, and what happens is uh, somebody says, you know, I was a good Samaritan the other day. I saw a lady, and she didn't have quite enough money for her groceries, so I, I gave her a dollar, and it covered it. I'm a good Samaritan. That's not what a good Samaritan is, friends. And Zen Holmes would say it like this. Friends, ask God who you are in the story. Most of you are the robbers. I had never heard that before. Because when God shows up and teaches you, it's often in a way that you are not expecting and often uncomfortable. The other thing we do is we don't trust ourselves alone with our own thoughts. We study the word of God with others. You might find it interesting or appalling that for a thousand years in church history, people were not allowed to study the scriptures alone. Because it causes a lot of problems. Because again, you can make the scripture say whatever you want it to say, depending on your mood. Isn't that true? You can just figure it out in your own head to get what you want. People are very smart. So what we do, we, we use multiple translations. We use commentaries by people who've given their life to these things. We look at the immediate context of the writing and we use our common sense. We use our common sense, friends. You don't check your brains at the door. We use care. We read it carefully, humbly, and reason. We don't think we've got it all figured out. We, we look at what people have said about the scripture over thousands of years. And we ask three questions. One, what does this passage tell us about God? We do this each and every time we come to a passage. A lot of the Bible tells us about God, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it just tells us what we're like. What are humans like? Right? 
And finally, what does this passage tell us about the relationship between God and humankind, between God and us? That's important. What is God like? What are we like? What's our relationship like? So, friends, we never use the Bible as a weapon. Now, I know in the New Testament, the Bible is the sword, the word of God. I find that in the history of Christianity, uh, Bible as a sword and a weapon has not been a helpful metaphor, i.e. the Crusades or picket, right? So we're not to use the Bible as a weapon. We're just not. That's not what we're supposed to do. Because it leads to terrible things. Terrible things. You might say the opposite of what God wants in the world. In John 8, we have this story. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, ready to teach, where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. As I was studying this week, uh, Adam Hamilton actually said that when he came to this part, he actually uh, pictures her in a bedsheet. I mean, they're in the act. They pull her out of the bed and throw her down in the temple in front of perhaps thousands of people. And in the law of Moses, which is the same as saying the Bible for us, that was their Bible. And in the Bible, Jesus, they say we're supposed to kill her. Actually, stone her. What a way to die. Everybody just picks up rocks and throws them at this woman until she's dead. So she bleeds out. And so they look at Jesus because they're trying to trap him. And they say, now what do you say? But Jesus bends down. He starts to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stoops down and writes on the ground again. And those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. One after another. The woman's still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. And, and in my mind, uh, Jesus has an afterthought because it'll get you killed. Don't wind up in this mess again because I might not be here next time and they'll kill you. Don't do that. It's not even been a year since I was given this rock. Some of you know who gave me this rock. You see, on Saturday, October 27th, 2018, 9.45 a.m., There were three worship services underway at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. A few minutes into the worship service, gunman walks in, heavy set white guy, opens fire for 20 minutes. I want you to think about that. I've been preaching for 30 minutes. 20 minutes. From the time you walked in, I started preaching until just a few moments ago. Gunfire. There's no place to hide. You're in its way. That's what happened. Eleven people were killed. And as I looked at the list of the dead, there are two names that stood out to me. One was Rose Malinger. She was 97. 
Friends, she was 97. Reading the scriptures. Praying to God. What sort of threat might she be? 97. Melvin Wax. 88. 88. Are you kidding me? My parents aren't even 88. These are the terrible threat to our country. These 97 and 88 year old praying people in their synagogue. Now how do you make sense of this? How does that happen in our country? What is the thought in someone's mind that that's what you have to do? I'll tell you what the police say. I don't know, but what the police say is that the shooter shouted out loud, all Jews must die. Where do you get an idea like that? I don't know. But I do know that without the lens of Jesus, the word of God, Jesus, these people were not the first to die by the way someone read scripture. By what someone's scripture said about a certain group of people, Jews, slaves, foreigners, gay men. They read it. It's in there. But they didn't take the time to put it through the lens of Jesus. And when that happens in any of those contexts, our world is destroyed. And has real, very real, modern day implications. Don't pretend it doesn't. Because it does. You matter. What you do with this message matters. What you tell your friends matters. What they believe matters for all of us. So when I went to visit Rabbi Harris of Temple B'nai Israel to share our grief in their community almost a year ago now, she gave me this rock that her daughter painted. Her daughter is painting rocks. To let the world know that love matters. That love still matters. That your love in the world still matters. Because Jesus is the lens through which we read all the rest of it. I keep this on my desk every day. Love matters. Love matters. Especially when we read the Bible. Now. To try to perform the worst transition in the history of Acts 2. Let me say that we're not going to do it with the Bible. We're not going to play Bible roulette. We're just not. Right? Because you say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And you open up to the New Testament and you find, so Judas threw the money at the temple and went away and hanged himself. It's not how you use the Bible. It's dangerous. Or or you look up something else, you know. Am I supposed to have this job? And it says, go and do likewise. Oh, God said it. I flipped to the right page. It must, must be it. Right? So we read the Bible not as a magic eight ball, not some random way, but we view everything in the light of what Jesus said and did. All of it. Every word of it. All the time. Super important. You see, you are not dishonoring God by asking questions of the scripture that seem inconsistent or uh, at at odds with scientific knowledge or geography or history. You're just not. That's what we do. That's the way Jesus taught. He was a rabbi. He sat down and people asked him questions. That's how it works. That's, that's what Jesus did. And Jesus is the word by which all other words of scripture are to be interpreted and understood. Super important, friends. So your action step this week. I want you to be brave here. Now, in the study guide that goes along with the book, it said, this week, sit down 
with a spouse or a friend. I thought, that's weird. I mean, you can be a, your spouse's friend. It's okay, right? So I just changed it to friend. This week, sit down with a friend and listen to biblical passages that are difficult for you. They might be difficult because you don't understand them, or they might be difficult because they're there and you don't want to accept it. I don't want to invite you to just reread them together. Invite somebody. Um, and if it were me doing it, I'd try to invite somebody that I thought was maybe smarter than I am or had more uh, input than I did. It's, you know, just try to find somebody to do that with you and then see what happens. Ask God to guide you together. Together. We do this work. Say it with me. Together. Together. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for the Bible. Will you read this with me? Thank you for working with people through the ages to speak to us and guide us. Thank you most of all that you came in person in Jesus to show us face to face what you are really like. Help us to read, study, and understand the Bible in such a way as to lead us to Jesus in our own lives. Help us to stay open to your voice, call, and love for all people. Help us love you with all we are and to love others as you have loved us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Let's continue to pray. Lord God, we know that your word is true. We know that your word is important and your word is meant to give life, not take it. You are the way, the truth, and life itself. We thank you, Jesus, for it all. And we thank you that you've taught us even how to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.